Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology with me, Tiasha Zaitz. Have you ever had the experience of not knowing how to decide about your medical condition? Or you went to the doctors and haven't asked half of the things you remembered might be useful to know hardly when you returned home? Maybe you're an app developer trying to figure out how to prevent churn and have a lasting user engagement with your health app. In today's episode, you'll hear from Dr. Talia Miron Schatz, an expert in medical decision-making and the author of a new book titled Your Life Depends on It, What You Can Do to Make Better Choices About Your Health. We talked about why physicians and patients need to abandon old behavior patterns that no longer work and learn to collaborate to help each other to make better choices together. We discussed the latest findings about health choices and medical decision-making How can doctors talk to patients so patients leave the doctor's office informed? And we also ended the discussions with three important questions you, in the role of a patient, should practice before going to see a doctor. Enjoy the discussion, and if you like it, to leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast. And if you haven't yet, subscribe to the show to be notified about new episodes automatically. And visit our website www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. Now let's go to psychology in healthcare. Talia, you're an expert in medical decision making with over 60 academic publications on happiness and medical decision making behind you uh, so far. You are researching topics such as information comprehension, patient participation, how can we better collaborate when we are in the medical setting from the doctor's perspective, from the patient perspective. So I want to just start with a warm-up question. What prompted you to start this research and to really focus on this part of the journey in healthcare? There are a few more aspects to my experience. One is that I recently wrote a book about medical decision-making with a special chapter for digital health, but really all the conclusions and everything in the book is about how people understand medical information. It's called your life depends on it because it does what you can do to make better choices about your health. And that's another aspect of it. So basically people creating digital health have a lot to learn. And I'm saying that because they know a lot about health and they know a lot about technology, but oftentimes they don't know a lot about the psychology of the users and the behavioral economics ways in which you can motivate them. Now, a really tough question for you, because we're, we're going to talk a lot about what you write about in the book, Yeah, but is it possible to say, what would you say that the three two or three most important conclusions uh, were that you came to when you were trying to maybe structure the research a little bit more to put it into a book? Wow, that's hard. That's really hard. I, I, I know. think if I had to really capture everything and just encapsulate it, I would talk about people understanding information and that has many shapes and forms and it's crucial with digital health. It's just essential because without it, you're providing people with a lot of data, 
which they don't understand. Another is giving them choice in the way that's right for them and that motivates them. So motivation and choice are super important. Just giving people information is not enough because maybe they don't understand it. Just telling them what to do is not enough because maybe they're not motivated to do this. And we know that. So when I give talks and I give many talks to executives, to physicians, to tech people, and I always say, put your hand up in the air. Okay, everybody puts their hand up and then put it down if you don't get enough sleep every night. Boom, 70% of the hands go down. If your hand is still up, uh, put your hand down if you don't exercise five times a week for 30 minutes. Boom, more hands go down. And then it's about drinking and alcohol, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the motivation. Once you've figured out the information, you need to figure out the motivation. That's really tough. Another bit I would put into that, and it's related, is the relationship bit. And that is to say, relationships matter a ton. They're the foundation of everything. So it makes a lot of sense when you go to see your doctor. And sometimes you go to see your doctor in their office. And sometimes you see your doctor via screen. Relationship is important. And you'll notice that people will say, oh, I love my app. What do you mean you love your app? If you love your app, you're going to use it. If you say my app is beneficial, what are the odds that you will use it? in a week, in a month. Ah, not great. If you say, oh, this is the coolest app. I love my app. That's great. And it can be the coolest app about something important. And you would think it's important. Who cares if it's cool? Just use it. You understand that it's important. And that doesn't work like that. So that's another aspect. People have to trust you. People have to like you. You being the doctor, you also being the app or the interface of the health system. And that's crucial. That's really crucial. Can we maybe uh, stay with this topic a little bit more? Because yeah. I feel that you've got more to say. And I think we saw already years ago when smartwatches started appearing, when applications started mm -hmm. appearing, that when it comes to behavioral change, there's two things that need to be addressed. One is basically empowering the patient, giving them information, and then encouraging continuous mm -hmm. compliance, continuous motivation. Right. And um, for a long time, there was just the finding that after six months, approximately, just people st stop using it, you stop using any support that might mm -hmm. improve their behavioral health. And that might not necessarily be because of the um, uh, habit fatigue or the fatigue of uh, being mindful of the wearable. It can also be that they just created new habits that are beneficial for them and you actually achieved what you mm -hmm. wanted. So a, a better, healthier patient. Can, so what uh, did you observe in this aspect about how medical applications are evolving, how the approaches to change behavior is improving? That's a really great question. I think the numbers you have are a bit more optimistic than what I see. I think they relate to people who were hooked with the app, who didn't just download the app, but were using it. I want to give you more discouraging numbers. And I think where my numbers are going to be different from yours is that you're talking about people who choose to download an app. And that's already people who self-select. There's a selection bias here. They're interested, they care about it, they use it. That's one group. Let's talk about another group. And that's like a secret group. Why is it secret? Because I work with health advertisers. And they come to me and they say, we have a problem. 
they're not going to talk about it at the next conference. You're not going to hear it from them. It's a secret because it's basically a failure. So here they talk about employees who have diabetes. Now, these employees did not choose to have diabetes and did not choose for their employer to be to enroll them to a support system. But the employer did. And it's funny that you mentioned six months because this program was a program where employees got a new glucometer, they got support calls from a health coach, and they got free strips for the glucometer. So basically, their employer thought they were giving them the best treatment possible. Out of 100 such people, six months down the road, do you want to guess how many were still on the program? Ten. Optimist, eight. Out of 100. So you talk about people dropping off after six months. I talk about people failing to onboard because they don't understand what's happening. They don't understand. They don't, they don't want a new glucometer. They have a glucometer. So it's a, it's a different, completely different mindset from what you're talking about because you're talking about those who self-selected who said, this is a cool app. I want to use this app. I'm going to download this app. And there, there are many stages here. There's a stage of learning about the app, understanding the app, thinking you need it, actually downloading it. These are so many barriers. They overcame all these barriers. I'm talking about people who the employer said, here's a digital health program for you. Now, this digital health program has a hard time befriending itself with the employee who may, may or may not want it. So this is a different uh, type of interaction, a different type of relationship, if you will, because suddenly you get a call from someone who's your diabetes coach and you don't know them. You never bargained to have a diabetes coach. It feels very intrusive. So that's a different kind of relationship and that's a different kind of challenge. So when you're designing digital health, you could say, I don't care. They have diabetes. This is what they need. But what you have to understand is their mindset, is their psychology, is this being imposed on them or are they choosing? So that's like my take on it. And I'm going to get back to your question. And you asked a wonderful question. You said people drop off after six months. People get tired. People get bored. People drop off their medication. Half of the people will drop off their medication at some point, often within the first year for various reasons. And it's a challenge to make it new to make it repeatedly new. And you're right, because sometimes we don't know. Maybe that person has dropped off the app because they say, I don't need this really cool app to remind me to exercise or to take my medication anymore. I'm doing that. This is where really good research needs to tell us this and actually say, this is a huge success for the app because you wanted to teach people to treat themselves better and you succeeded. And that's wonderful. If this is the case, it's a success. If this is the case, basically the app should teach people, should aspire almost to have people wean themselves off the app after a while. You don't need an app to brush your teeth. You just brush your teeth because that's what you do. And that's what you teach your kid to brush their teeth. And they don't need an app for that. So that's great success. But we need to know, is this the case or did they just get tired of it and maybe they don't care so much anymore and maybe they're not minding their health. And so when it comes to adherence and long-term use, it's 
as you said, related to motivation. And insurance companies have tried this to give lower premiums or to tie the amount of the premium to the exercise habits with wearables and things like that. So what do you know about that aspect of the research? What would you say are the latest findings around that? Because I wonder to which extent uh, can that be a long-term motivator Mm -hmm. uh, for someone to stay healthy and to measure it continuously? Right. So first of all, we're encountering a really interesting challenge. We are helping people to stay healthy. And you could say it's their own goal, right? It's their body. They should be motivated. We shouldn't be motivating them to stay healthy. Their own health is their own motivator. But it's not exactly how it goes. So why isn't it how it goes? Because we have immediate gains and long-term gains. And we're very myopic. We tend to focus on what's right in front of us. And what's right in front of me is spending the evening and it's cold, spending it at home in front of the TV. That's fun. Um, a long-term gain of, say, going to the pool because I'm a swimmer would be I would be fit and healthy, but that's somewhere down the road. I'm fit and healthy now. I'm fine. I don't have any problems. So the long-term gain seems far. It is far. Seems small compared with the fun I'm going to have right now. And that's a battle. And that's a battle that you need to help me overcome by creating a mindset, by creating some sort of gamification where I tell myself I'm going to swim every day, maybe with one day off because there's really cool research by Marisa Sharif from Wharton where I used to teach who says that it's fine to give yourself a free pass once a week or even twice a week. That's fine. Otherwise, if you just commit to a streak and you slack for one day, you say, I broke my streak anyway, so why should I even continue? And that's a really cool mechanism. And I I don't think many people in digital health or in insurance are aware of that because otherwise you train people to just continue. And when they discontinue, they say, all is lost. Why should I bother? So that I gave an example of the fun And the perk of not exercising today or having a burger because I feel like it with mayo. And that's not really healthy nutrition, but it's fun. It's fun. It's rewarding me now. When you try to combat that, look, Tali, you're going to pay $170 less on your insurance premium. That sounds remote. That sounds cold. It's not gratifying. It's abstract. And I'm going to pay a fairly large sum for my insurance premium. So it's whatever. It's not something to motivate me throughout the year. So insurance companies really need to build in the motivators in a more continuous manner, even if there are smaller rewards. And that can sound funny, but the one-time gain of $170 is not going to sustain me throughout the year. If you give me smaller rewards for either behavior or output, you need to lose 20 pounds. Okay. Every incremental decrease, you get something that could potentially help also because it's a smaller goal. It's attainable. I can say if I needed to lose 20 pounds, that might, that may be discouraging. And if I needed to lose 50 pounds, even more discouraging because I was very good for two days and I haven't lost 50 pounds. That's just not going to happen. So if there's there's to the degree that you build in shorter goals, that works. I don't see the American population massively 
losing weight, by the way, even though insurance companies are really trying hard to drive people toward healthier habits. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great um, point and also really shows how important the environment is when we're talking about behavioral change. That's why policies are so important when we're talking about population health. You don't need people on apps to eat healthier. You need policies that tax sugary drinks, that maybe just change the environment of for example, what's offered to children in their lunchtime. I still remember how when I was in in primary school and we got the vending machines Mm -hmm. for candies and we really, we were really excited about that as kids. And we would just, during breaks, we would get a chocolate or two. And then 10 years later, the the vending machines are forbidden to -hmm. to be in primary schools because you don't want to encourage unhealthy behavior. So how do you see that balance between how can we, how much individual responsibility should we really put on people Mm -hmm. with everything they have going on in their lives compared to what can actually be done in a different manner? It's a fantastic question. It's actually something that I think about a lot. I want to answer from the framework of libertarian paternalism. That's two big words, right? So libertarian means you can do whatever you want, really. But paternalism means there's like a benevolent father who really cares about you and is going to guide you in the right way. And you can say, you know what, dad, I don't care. I want to do something else but we're going to guide you in the right way. And paternalism, it's actually paternalism, it's not even libertarian, says, you're eating too much candy, lady. It's really bad for your nutrition and bad for your teeth. No vending machines in school. That's paternalism. Libertarian paternalism, I'm going to sell you in the cafeteria, if there's a school cafeteria, there's going to be lots of good food. And when you enter the cafeteria, that's a question of choice architecture. And in a cafeteria, it's like physical. You can actually see that. So the first thing, suppose the first beverage is club soda. Zero calories. So if you're thirsty, you get that. If you first see something that's very sugary, you get that. Likewise with a salad or a healthier option. If it's first presented to you, you're going to put it on your tray. By the time you get to the candy... You might say, oh, my tray is already full. Like, really, I don't need this. So that's libertarian paternalism, because if you really want the candy, you're going to take that. That's one aspect of it. And you can ask, do we even need that? And I love that you ask that. It's a question I ask myself all the time. I think the answer is yes. I think people are fallible. We make mistakes. We don't always behave in ways that we want to behave. And I think that's the key. It's not like my government wants me to exercise. I don't think my government, like my prime minister wakes up in the morning and says, did Talia get in her one kilometer swimming today? No. But if the country cares about people exercising, they should create an environment where it's easy to exercise, where you can bike, where there are public pools and public sports groups, etc. And that's one way of looking at it. I also think of the media. By the way, this always bothers me. Whenever you watch TV, people go on a date. What do they drink? Wine. Yeah. Wine or beer, right? 
Friends meet for dinner. Two girlfriends meet for dinner. What do they drink? Wine. Yeah, wine. wine. Always wine. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So mm-hmm. people drink wine all the time. I'm not against wine. But if all you see on TV are people drinking wine, friends meeting together, having a beer and another beer, it creates a culture. It, it does something that creates a culture. And I want to go to smoking. So with smoking, you can't smoke in the office. You can't smoke in the movie theater. You can't smoke in the restaurant. And that's paternalism. Someone is saying, no, you can't smoke here. It's not good for you. And it's not good for the people sitting next to you. And I don't care how much you like smoking. And I'm going to take away your freedom here because it's better for you. And it's better for everybody else. And if you really want to smoke, go outside and smoke. That's fine. I want to take that point to a place that's different and that's health and that's medical information. So you said beforehand, you said people have information, right? They can understand the information and then make decisions. That's an assumption that isn't always proven. I'll tell you why, because sometimes we just don't understand the medical information or we don't understand its repercussions. A really funny example, which is also really sad. A patient gets told that they have atrial fibrillation. Do you understand what atrial fibrillation means just from hearing the term? Probably not. (laughs) Yeah, it's a loaded term. It's like, what does it mean? It's like hypertension. Hypertension. What's hypertension? Oh, you actually have high blood pressure. Okay, this I can understand. Hypertension might go above my head and atrial fibrillation likewise. So when you're told that and you're given medication for that, do you understand that you have to take it all the time or otherwise you might have a stroke? If your doctor doesn't explain that, you may say, I don't feel anything because it's asymptomatic. So if you have a medical condition that's asymptomatic and you don't understand that and you don't understand that what the medication does isn't going to make you feel any different, it's just going to, not just, it's going to prevent you from having a stroke, then you're not going to follow up on the medication. And of course, it's your fault and it's your body, but it's, there's also medical establishment out there and your doctor out there that should say, this is what it means. Please take your medicine. Don't wait for yourself to feel bad because once you feel bad, you'll have a stroke and I'm not going to be able to reverse that. If your doctor says that and says that simply and clearly, you will understand. Now, all of this translates to to the digital world, of course, because your app is smart. Maybe your app is smarter than you. How about that? That's a scary thought because your app has all this information and all these algorithms and it can show you beautiful displays. But what does it mean? What do you have to do now? Do you understand? I'm not sure. I'm not sure I would understand. And it's important for me to say that when I wrote my book and when I give talks and when I work with companies, it's always important for me to say people don't always understand. And people are people like you and me. 
And people can be doctors. Don't think that everyone will understand. It, 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 it goes beyond that. It, it also can be about perception. A few uh, years ago, I wrote a, an opinion piece based on my experiences as a chronic patient. And the title of that piece was The Doctor Can Never Be Right. And every statement that they will make has unwanted side effects. Because, for example, when you have a doctor that has a horizon uh, of patients with different severities of a specific condition, uh, they might sound very optimistic with a patient with a mild disease mm -hmm. because they deal with patients that have really severe forms of a specific condition. And when you've got a patient with a mild disease and the doctor says, oh, you're doing great, you're awesome, but I experienced that. And I thought maybe, maybe I'm really overcomplicating my, my personal state and you can quickly fall into the trap of under, underestimating the seriousness of your condition. So then maybe another doctor will come, <laughs> come by and he's going to have a completely different idea about your state and might potentially scare you. So there's so many, what, one thing is what the doctors say. It's important how they say it. It's really hard. From a patient perspective, I can say that it's really hard to be a doctor because <laughs> we want them to be kind, but again, they shouldn't be too kind. You don't fall into the trap of not taking them seriously. <laughs> they shouldn't be too strict. And yeah, it's just a, a whole range of things that can impact the doctor-patient relationship and what the end outcome of a patient state will be. So in the book, you, you talk a lot about shared decision-making and how we can encourage that. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. How does an ideal shared decision-making look like? And how, how do you see the dynamics between patients and doctors? Of course. I want to say something. What you said reminded me something, and I love it. You said the doctor has to be kind, but not too kind. And actually, I saw an app that's related to something that I think is super meaningful, and that's talking about death, like preparing, and not just for people who are about to die, but just in general to have our loved ones know what our attitudes are around end of life, around organ donation, all those things that you never want to talk about because it's like, why are you talking about this? What's wrong with you? But the truth is, and that's, I'm sorry if it's shocking to any of the listeners, we're all going to die one day, I hope, in many years, in really great health. But that's just life, right? That it has an expiration date. So there was an app that was supposed to help that is intended, not just supposed to help people plan for that. And when I looked at it, they used so many emojis and it looked like it was designed for five-year-olds. So I understand, I think I completely understand what they were doing, that they were trying to make it fun and hip and cool and not scary, which I completely understand. But I also thought it was too cutesy. I thought, if you want me to take you seriously, if you want me to talk to you about end of life, don't treat me like I'm a four-year-old. Don't treat me like I can't read and I just need emojis for everything. Take care of your mm, home picture. Seriously, who am I going to leave my home to when I die? That's serious stuff. So let's find a balance here. That's just an aside mm -hmm. and it's your fault because you said the doctor should be kind, but not too unkind, but not too kind. So you asked me about chair decision-making and that's a place where I have mixed feelings. I'll tell you why. I think shared decision, first of all, what is shared decision-making? It's the idea that patients 
and doctors are partners in their decision-making process. They do it together. It used to be that decisions were made in a paternalistic way. So shared decision-making is actually an, a quite, quite a new idea. It used to be, if you ask your parents, your grandparents, what a, an interaction at the doctors look like, they will say, I come to the doctor, I tell them what's wrong, they give me an answer. That's it. If you ask a younger patient, they'll describe something that's much more like shared decision-making. They'll say, I come to the doctor, I describe what happened, the doctor asks me questions, explains the alternatives to me, and we decide what's going to happen. That's shared decision-making. That sounds great, and that sounds pretty obvious. The thing is that to get there, to get to that beautiful point of shared decision-making, the doctor has to listen. You have to trust the doctor. You have to feel like they really care about you. Not that they're in love with you, but that they, they opened the door and they said, Hi, Professor Ron Schatz. What brings you here today? What can I do for you? It takes maybe five seconds to say that, but they said my name. They asked me what I need and they said, I'm here for you. That's a lot. That's actually quite a lot. So that's the beginning of shared decision-making. Another aspect of this is that I will receive information in a way that I can understand it. And that relates to the language that I get. That's the difference between hypertension and high blood pressure or atrial fibrillation, which is like, what are you talking about? And a medical condition that can cause stroke. Oh my God, now I understand. Now, now you freaked me out because first of all, beforehand you were talking about something that I didn't understand or talking about probabilities and numbers. And that's a place. I love that example. You do? I absolutely love that. Yeah. I love that example in the book when you say you doctors should always say if 1000 people have something, then out of those 1,000 will have a severe experience or something like that, instead of saying that in percentages. So yeah, maybe you can add a few uh, more examples that will aid any doctor that's listening into how they can better communicate Absolutely. their patients. Absolutely. This is really one of the main reasons I wrote the book, because I felt there's so much great research. And it's in research, like you said, I wrote over 60 academic papers. Yes. And some of them are exactly on this point, exactly on how to present probabilities. It doesn't help. It has not yet changed the policy. So there are many researchers around the world who discovered that when you want to present people with probabilities, the best way to do that is in a frequentist way. And what's a frequentist way? Instead of saying the chances of something happening are 0.7, or worse, 0.07, which is like, what? You say out of a thousand people, seven people will have this condition or side effect or outcome or anything. And then you can see, oh, a thousand people and seven. I don't know if that's good or bad. You decide if that's good or bad. What I do know is that when I give people information in this format, it's easier for them to understand. It's easier for them to visualize it. If I ask them to repeat it to me, they have an easier time doing that. And even a kid can do that. I love that because when we are patients, we're scared. We might be in pain. We don't know what's happening. 
I always think of the first time I sat in on a genetic consultation. So you asked how I got into this. I was a PhD student in psychology, and I was invited to teach the psychological aspects of medical decision-making to students at the medical school, to genetic counseling students. And I said, that's great, and I'm going to read everything about this, but I had three kids, and I never had genetic consultation. What does it look like? And I went to the office to see what it looks like. So it was such a typical experience. I left home. I was like so proud of myself. I'm a PhD student. I'm going to teach. Yay, me. I drive to the hospital. I park. Eventually, I park. It's always a battle. I walk to the hospital. There's You need to walk from the parking lot. I look for the genetic counseling department. Oh, my God. It was hidden. It was so hard to find. You see these doors with like radiation, warning sign. By the time I got there, I was not so proud of myself anymore. I felt much smaller. And I sat in on the consultation and I heard a lot of information and I thought this must be really confusing. And I think this is the case many times for many patients. No matter who you are, no matter how big you are in your life, how important you are in your life, how smart you are, when you sit in the patient's seat, you become a tiny bit smaller. and some people get really mad at me for saying that. I wrote an article for the Wall Street Journal, and the title that I didn't give was, Can Patients Decide? The answer is, sometimes it's really hard for them, and that's okay. And that's really okay because the doctor's role in this case is to support them, not to say we should be able to decide. That's not empowering. That's just disrespecting where people are. So I think, mm-hmm. yes, people do need help around these things and they need help with shared decision making because if they feel small and if they don't understand the information and if they receive probabilities as percentages 0.07 what i don't really understand and they may not tell you that because they're so used to it but if you ask them what does it really mean they'll say oh i don't know that's not great how can they decide based on that So Mm. shared decision-making is like the cherry on top of these processes of causing, of creating trust, of giving information in a way that's clear, understandable, of giving probabilities in a way that people actually understand, of giving choice in a way that makes sense. Who gives choice in a really great way? Netflix. If you go on Netflix and they show you everything, You'd be so overwhelmed and so frustrated. You'd be really angry. But instead, they say, trending in in your area. Okay, there's a line there. And there are maybe six shows. That's fine. You can deal with six shows. And then they say, continue watching for you, just for you. And then they will say, this genre. So each of them is a different category with only about six shows. That's manageable. If they gave you 50, you would be like, this is too much for me. I don't like it. And you would walk away. And they could say, we gave her choice. We empowered her. But you would say, look, guys, I'm human. And humans can't deal with all this choice. It's just confusing. So take my, I don't want to say my limitations. Take my capabilities into account. Help me. Mm -hmm. 
And in uh, in the medical setting, that's even harder because the chances that we won't understand what we're choosing from is so much higher. And you talk about that through an example also in the book, when you've got a patient that is just before surgery yes. or some procedure, and then the doctor asks him, I think, what kind of stent he wants. And it's like... Hello, how, how am I supposed to know? So that really made me think to which extent when we're talking about decreasing paternalism in healthcare and giving patient choices, to which extent is that in some cases a way of decreasing liability for the healthcare professionals because he can say, ask mm -hmm. the patient to decide. He had a choice, so it wasn't my fault. It's definitely there. It's definitely there. When you look at research on that asks doctors a question that you wish they would always answer no. And the question is, do you sometimes overtreat your patients? Do you sometimes prescribe medication or even procedures that you don't think are necessary? About 20% of them say yes. And the top reasons are, it brings me money, the patient demanded it, and I'm afraid of being sued. Not great reasons. So, Sometimes this happens and sometimes physicians are really afraid of liability, as you said, with choice. And they say, well, you choose. But the truth is, it doesn't make sense. So I did research again on atrial fibrillation. That's why I'm so enamored with this uh, condition. We asked patients, how did you choose your medication? And we conducted the study in America, the land of direct-to-consumer advertising and cho choice and everything. And... Basically, they said, 40% of them said, based on the doctor's experience. It makes sense, right? There are six or seven or eight different medications. How do you choose? I don't know. I asked my doctor. It was interesting because really very few of them knew something that was related to a differentiator, like the brand of the drug. It was mostly things that were right across the board. So you give people choice and they say, Gee, I don't know. And then they go back to the doctor. I think sometimes it helps people when they can choose not just what they want, but also how to choose. That's another layer of choice and being able to say, I don't know. I'm not in top form right now. I might be the biggest expert in the world on something, but right now I'm a patient and that's what I want to be. And there's a there's a YouTube with Baba Shiv, who's a marketing professor at Stanford. I think he has the ability to make many good choices. And he said in the TED Talk that when his wife was a cancer patient, him and her chose to take a back seat. He said we would focus on healing and the doctors would focus on making choices. I think that's really smart and that's really fair to give people the option to choose how to choose. Do, so you originally come from Israel, you live between Israel and the US, you travel a lot, you work in, in the US, and the two countries have very different healthcare systems. So Israel on the one hand is run health maintenance organization, the healthcare is public, access is basically granted to everyone. You don't have to worry about pre-authorizations or surprise bills coming at your doorstep. So what I'm wondering here is, given that you're in very present in both countries. Do you see that 
patients also make different decisions about their health. Because on the one hand, it's easier to go to the doctors in Israel mm -hmm. just because you, there's so much things that you don't need to worry about. Yeah. I think there are two things that are better. Well, there are many things that are better in Israel. The financial part is definitely better. If you're sick, you go to the hospital. You don't pay. You don't pay a thing. You can be in the hospital for months. You can have the most complicated surgery. Your bill will always be zero. It's picked up by your HMO and, and nobody talks about it. I think that's wonderful. It really is. And I know in America, there's sometimes concerns that if treatment were free, people would abuse the system. I don't think this happens in Israel. I think people just take care of themselves and they don't think twice about going to see the doctor. They don't think, what about my copay? Likewise, with kids, you see a pediatrician for free, always. You see an OBGYN for free, always. You see your primary care physician for free, always. So if your kid is sick, you don't think, do I really want to pay a copay? And if you pay the copay yesterday, you don't think, should I go again because my kid isn't doing really well? But that's, I'm putting that aside. I want to relate to two points. One is people are fairly loyal to their HMOs in Israel. I always tell my students, you're more likely to divorce than to switch an HMO. And what this means is you have a relationship with your HMO doesn't say, Chasha, I don't care about you. You know why I don't care about you? Even though you're really nice and smart, it's because in two years you won't be with me. And when you're old, you'll be with Medicare. I don't care what your health is going to be like when you're old. You're going to be someone else's problem. That's really bad. That's bad for our health. If you think of health, not just as something that someone has to worry about, if you think of it as a resource for the entire country, for the entire nation, then someone should care about your health, not just how you're doing today, but how you will be doing when you're 40 and 50 and 16. And that someone is a bit unclear who that someone is. Is this Medicare? They don't take care of you now. Now you're young and beautiful. You're going to be old and beautiful. You're going to be Medicare's problem. When you're young, you're someone else's problem. And there's no continuity. There's no incentive to think about that. So people switch HMOs all the time. They switch employers. The employers switch agreements. I worked for the University of Princeton. I had a blast. I was a postdoc there with Nobel laureate Daniel Kahneman. So I worked there for four years. I switched HMOs. I had three HMOs in four years. And I never chose to leave. It was a foreign idea to me. But they changed their agreements and my HMO changed and my doctors changed. I can't remember the name of the pediatrician. Now I had three kids when I was there. You would think I would remember the name of the pediatrician. I don't. What does this mean? It means there was no relationship. There was no trust. There was nothing. And that's hard. That's really hard. And that's, I think, a difference between the two countries. I want to jump to COVID and I'll tell you why, mm -hmm. because I think COVID has boosted digital health and with digital health, you have this challenge of how do I create trust? Maybe it's not an ongoing relationship. Maybe this person is not going to be my pediatrician for the next 20 years. He's just going to be the one surgeon I'm going to see for one time or the one neurologist I'm going to see for one time. And that's a question of, what are my expectations from this person? What am I getting from this interaction? And what more can I get? So there was a study, a very recent study came out of Norway 
just now in the Journal mm-hmm. of Medical Internet Research, and they looked at patients who had ongoing headaches and they received consultations either in the office or via video. Now, this study was done in Norway, in Trums, and that's funny because I met someone from Trums when I was traveling in Scandinavia many years ago, and he invited me to come over and visit his family. I took the bus. I was on the bus for six hours. Norway is a big country. If you have to be in the car or on the bus for a long time to see your neurologist, it might be beneficial to see them via video. And the study showed that people who had neurological consultations, either via video or in person, had 40% of them decreased their headaches over a year. And that was great. And it didn't make a difference whether it was in person or whether it was via video. And likewise, patient satisfaction was similar. Follow-up was a bit higher if you went in person than if you went, if you saw the other person on video. So I think there are many opportunities here. We can, we talked about long-term. What are the long-term goals? Obviously, the long-term goal for the patient and for the HMO is cure. It's for people to feel better and for people actually to consume fewer health services, right? Because that costs money. So if follow-up for in-person is 50% and follow-up for video is 30%, you can say we actually have an opportunity here. We need to find that reason to get people to say, that doctor helped me or helped me. I need to see them again. How do I do that? And to remember and to feel like there was an interaction. And in a way, digital health makes it very easy because programming a reminder system, that's a no-brainer. That really is something very junior programmers can do. And if you remember that, if you understand that this is how people think and how they, their minds work and that they need this reminder and that they need this feeling that the doctor cares about me and wants to know how I'm doing, then you can amp up the usability and the effectiveness of digital health. When it comes to decision-making in uh, healthcare and from an individual level, when you're sick and you have to make a decision, one topic that also sprung to my mind when reading the book was the challenges with fake news and with just conspiracy theories. Because today, the the problem is that uh, these false information are written in a way that sounds credible. There was recently an example a few months ago when a family doctor here in Slovenia was asking publicly the specialist of immunology about his opinion related to, to COVID and she just sent him a 40 pages long article that was argumenting for something, I don't remember the details, but the point was that he really had to take time, read through that and explain why the the claims Mm -hmm. in that long article were uh, false or just scientifically problematic. And that's where I see a huge challenge today when we're trying to unify people and make them pro-science. If, if the information is just impossible mm-hmm. to understand because we're not specialists, how do you see the challenges mm-hmm. with informed decision-making? Because just reading a lot is not enough 
to make the right decision. I completely understand. I completely agree with you. I think it's a major challenge because the way we like to process information is quickly based on not a lot of information, based on cues. It's like when we go to see the doctor, we say, oh, the doctor looked, they looked so professional. Their office, like they spoke professionally. They're a good doctor. Are they really a good doctor? I don't know. I need cues. I need hints. Medical information is very dry. It's very complicated. It's the opposite of giving us hints. Daniel Kahneman talks about system one and system two of thinking. System one is quick and dirty. It's, oh, this looks great. This sounds credible. And I follow. And system two is, let me read the 40 pages and decide. And even when we think we need system two, ugh, we run to system one. And anti-vaxxers can sound very convincing. And they will have one sentence slogans that will sound great. I will not let anyone put a chip into me. There's no chip. There's no chip. Seriously. Or any kind of conspiracy theory. It's simple. And it has a lot of emotion in it. And statistics can't fight that. So in fact, you mentioned Israel. So the prime minister here tried to convince parents to vaccinate their kids and, and Parents are not doing that. He didn't bring statistics. He brought a 16-year-old girl with him who had had COVID. She used to be a top student. And after COVID, her cognitive abilities decreased. So now everyone in the country knows this girl and knows how old she is and knows what happened to her. And that was super, super smart because he used the right language. He used system one. He used not a lot of information something very emotional. Stories are always more convincing than statistics. And that can be very frustrating if you're a scientist. Are you kidding me? Do I need a story? Really? Do you need a cartoon? Or what's wrong with you? Vaccinate your kids. But the truth is, yes, people do need the story. They do need the emotional motivator. And the more governments and healthcare systems, et cetera, understand that, the better. And likewise with digital health, we're going back to the beginning of the conversation. You can give people information, but that is not enough. You have to understand the psychology behind it. You have to understand how they interpret their information. You have to help them. You have got to help them. And that's like almost the first gig I had was with digital health, with a platform that showed people an entire dashboard of where they are with their health. And I was like, that is very complicated. That's great, but very confusing. And you have to think of their emotions and you have to think of how they feel if they're in the red zone or the orange zone. What are we going to do now? And these are things you have to take into account when you design digital health. You can't only count on system two. If you would have to just maybe choose one thing for patients to keep in mind when visiting the doctor or deciding whether or not to go to the doctors, what would it be? So what would be the one advice? I know that in the book, you, you talk about three questions that you should have in mind. So maybe we can mention those. Exactly. And that can be like a happy note to end on. So it's, I call it, ask about what matters and you have to practice. You've got to practice this. It's very simple. The first question is, for everything you're offered. What are the risks? So you have to start with the risks. Why? Because that's really important. And we oftentimes don't want to think about it, but it's there and we need to know what the risks are. 
So that's the first thing. The second thing is what are the benefits? Because that's obvious. And the third thing is what are the alternatives? And the reason for that is, and you mentioned culture before, is that we're used to respecting our doctors, which is great. We're used to trusting our doctors, which is great, but it is our body. And if there are alternatives to say anesthesia, if it's full anesthesia or just anesthesia for the area, if it's like a knee surgery, I want to know that. What's the alternative? You're telling me I need full anesthesia. Is there an alternative? You're telling me I need surgery. Is there an alternative? Maybe physical therapy is an alternative. Maybe something else is an alternative. So risks, benefits, alternatives, these are great questions and you need to practice them because we tend to be so overwhelmed when we sit in front of the doctor, we're like, okay. And then we go home and our partner says, but what are the risks? And say, I, I don't know. I didn't ask. Is there an alternative? Oh my God. I didn't want to insult the doctor. Don't worry. Don't worry so much about the doctor's emotions. Don't insult the doctor, but consult the doctor. Really use their, use their knowledge, use their experience, because otherwise you're going to come home. Your partner will ask. You won't have an answer and you'll Google and who knows what you're going to find. So that's, mm -hmm. I think this is really empowering. This is not just saying, oh, you decide. It's saying here is how you can get the relevant information from your doc. I still remember there was an article in the New York Times years ago about how to prepare for a medical visit. And one of the points of advice was to bring somebody with you because when you're in the doctor's office, there's probably 80% of things that you won't remember. And that's why the advice for the doctors, or I think one of the doctors also said to me that she's doing that, that she's asking patients to repeat yes. what she said, because that's how you can make sure that the, the patient uh, took away some of the, the, the information. Yeah, it's the psychology behind taking care of one's health and exactly. the interactions is medicine is just so huge. I would say that I'm continuously fascinated. I still remember when I was on an, a student exchange in France and I felt sick. I was vomiting a little bit. And the only reason I went to the doctors was because I needed a note, a doctor's note, because I missed school. <laughs> and if I were here at, at home in Slovenia, I just wouldn't go to the doctors because I presumed that the doctor would just tell me to rest a day or two. And in France, I went to the doctors and I got five prescriptions for nausea, for uh, stomach pain, and I don't know what else. And I was just really, it really made me think to which extent the culture impacts prescribing and the environment and everything related to, to, to healthcare. So uh, maybe you can just as a final thought, add any of your additional experiences that you had in Israel versus the, the US, anything that comes to mind from the psychological perspective that made you think from the psychological perspective, well, I was shocked when my doctor, I had a Chinese doctor actually in Princeton and he prescribed, I wasn't feeling well. He said I should drink Gatorade. I thought that was really funny. I thought I would, someone else would probably recommend chicken soup, but not Gatorade, but to each his own. I think there are different cultures in terms of the emphasis on lifestyle versus prescribing. That's definitely a huge difference. That's a difference. I, I think there's a tendency toward prescribing in the U.S. that might be stronger than in other parts of the world. And we see that with opiates, with opioids, and uh, which are, I, 
I hesitate to say generously prescribed because generosity is for good things and this is not necessarily a good thing. I think it's a question of to what degree your doctor says, you seem a bit tired. Are you getting enough sleep? Maybe you should go to sleep earlier. Maybe you should drink more water as opposed to giving you something. And that's a question. And that's also, it's a, it's a cultural thing. It's a tendency from the doctor. Do we view the doctor as someone who prescribes things, who fixes things for us, or as someone who advises us and it's our responsibility? And these are questions that don't necessarily have easy answers. We have to ask ourselves the question of what do I expect and is it realistic? You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health, a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. If you like the show, go to www.lovethepodcast.com slash Faces of Digital Health to leave a rating or a review. This is highly appreciated since it helps other listeners interested in digital health and healthcare find the show as well. Thank you. Stay tuned.